Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Feature Classics. Hello everybody, my name is Brett Stewart. Joining me for another Future Classics, David Luzader, how are you? Oh, hello. I'm doing well, Brett. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk about this week's movie with Nicole Davis as well. How are you? I'm good, and I promise I will only very lightly mention how Brad Pitt looks like young Robert Redford, but like even more weathered somehow, yet not. It's odd. It's weird. <laughs> Which is not the first time we talked about that. Is that with the shirt off? No. I, yeah, I don't no. think it is. Yeah. <laughs> Joining us this week as well, we do have a guest. It's Justin Robert Young of a many shows. Redford never had that V. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that was he was sexy in like the way that men in the seventies were sexy, where you could still kind of have a pot belly. Like abs weren't really like invented until the late eighties. <laughs> true, uh, that's true. I just recently edited our episode of The Sting. That was classic Redford. No but Justin, you're on politics, 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 raise the dead, night attack, the comedy podcast. Yeah. You're working on a new show called feature story. We'll talk about all that at the end of the show and you can plug all that good stuff. Um, sure. Yeah. I am a, uh, a shameless fan of yours and a listener to all of those. So I will vouch <laughs> awesome, man. for their quality, but very, very good. You, and we'll do all those plugs at the end. But today is feature classics it was my pick this time around before i announce it however david is going to announce next week's movie which is an around the world pick yeah yeah i decided i wanted to bring one of my favorite actors to the show um and a movie i've actually wanted to bring for a very long time it's one of those ones i was waiting for it to be streaming it's probably never going to happen so you suckers gotta rent it it is goodbye lenin it's a german film shamelessly google that goodbye all right very cool Check that out for next week. This week, however, is 2019's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Actor Rick Dalton gained fame and fortune by starring in a 1950s television western, but is now struggling to find meaningful work in Hollywood that he doesn't recognize anymore. He spends most of his time drinking and palling around with Cliff Booth, his easygoing best friend and longtime stunt double. Rick also happens to live next door to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, the filmmaker and budding actress whose futures will forever be altered by members of the Manson family. Or will it? Uh, right off the bat, we've all seen this before, right? Justin, you're a longtime Tarantino fan. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were there for debut day or, well, I mean, it used to be midnight movies, but thankfully, as I've aged, uh, so has the declining box office, and they've now had to make midnight, what used to be midnight movies, more friendly for old people like me. So we were there, I guess, at sometime around like 5, 45, 6 o'clock. We were supposed to get the big, I think it was 80 millimeter or whatever, like just the film version. It didn't happen, but they did give us a little cut of the film it was great we were there on opening night uh, uh this is way too long i'm a super fan of tarantino i've <laughs> seen all the tarantino movies and uh yeah i saw it opening night. and i knew that going into this which was one of the reasons i picked it because i knew you'd be on david before we get too far and i, and I don't want to divert too much into this for people who i mean people don't know because we haven't talked about it on the show but two of us on the show really like timothy oliphant and one uh 
you know, ex- acknowledges that he exists. So I just want to know, Justin, thoughts on Timothy Oliphant just to start this off. I think he's great. Not only is he great, but he's got a great range. Like he can play doofy and kind of twee in a, in a way that is really funny because you think of him as the as the hard scrabble lawman and Deadwood and Justified and everything. But uh, no, I think he's I think he's great. Nicole, okay, counterpoint. I feel attacked. <laughs> I, I feel like no one is more oppressed in this country than the non Timothy Oliphant fan. Um, it's a good thing there are so few. <laughs> it's not that I don't like him. I just never watched any of his shows. That's all. You've seen The Mandalorian now. Oh, you haven't seen The Mandalorian. Okay, that's a whole different rabbit hole. No, I can't get down I haven't. to that right now. He's wonderful. <laughs> Santa Clarita Diet. I have Disney Plus. I'm sorry. All right. Well, <laughs> dialing us back, the reason I picked this movie for future classics is. I struggled, first of all, because I wanted to bring a Tarantino film. I think there's a couple in recent years that are eligible for this category. I almost brought Hateful Eight because I remember seeing that with the whole dog and pony show of having the organist actually in the theater and watching it on 70 millimeter. And that was that was amazing. That was like a life changing movie experience for me. But I settled on this for a couple of reasons. One, I, I think it's all of Tarantino's best qualities over the years. And he's a phenomenal filmmaker have really culminated perfectly into this movie. It seems like to me, at least as of now, this is his masterpiece in my opinion, which is the reason I brought it. This is his most finely tuned filmmaking that ignores some of his worst impulses and hones in on exceptional cinematography, a period that he, clearly adores and captures wonderfully. I don't think I've ever seen the 60s and 70s captured in the way he does. And in a style that's really wholly unique and unto this movie, uh, you've, you've never seen a movie quite like this before. And that's really unique for Tarantino. I love this movie. Um, and I think that this will be the Tarantino film that is talked about in the the echelon of Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards. And I, I think that this will be among his masterwork. So that's the reason I brought it. We'll dive into some of our discussion topics here. And right off the bat, the reason, and this is actually another reason I brought it, his alternate reality that he creates, it, in my opinion, is this really great love letter to like cinema. Like this is a movie for movie geeks, which is maybe why I brought it. It's the world where his love of spaghetti westerns and LA in the 60s and all that stuff never dies because it doesn't have to, because the ending of this movie we think is going to happen doesn't happen. And that's what I love about it is that he creates a fairy tale. And I remember seeing the first time, not fully understanding how that was going to roll out. And when it does, it just works really well. And I love that about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, no, I mean, <laughs> thanks, David. No, no, no. I, I, I mean, you're, you're right. You kind of encapsulated there where it's Tarantino very obviously views this as some sort of like golden age there's endless opportunity he's continuously emulating it so for him then to make a movie that celebrates it in a way that is so fun is what makes this movie so great it's not just that he he loves it and it's like slavishly loving the 60s and cinema of the time it's just like hey let's just be in the 60s let's be in hollywood in the 60s and just have a good time and i'm here for it i mean is it a good time (laughs) well (laughs) the first two hours Nicole, go I ahead. think it starts that way. I think there's a, a tonal turning point when Cliff goes out to the Spawn Ranch. And mm. I think that's where the movie starts to shift and, and build a sense of dread into it. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it, it's, it's hard for me to separate this movie with some of the other stuff that I wound up consuming after I saw it, because while I knew a little bit about the Manson murders, I had never really done like a deep dive into it. Like, and I would encourage anybody who's listening to this to listen to the podcast series. You must remember this, which uh, does Hollywood history. Uh, but one of their uh, series that really kind of put them on the map was about the Manson murders. And a lot of what they talk about is this kind of moment in time, specifically in California and even more specifically in Los Angeles, where it was kind of the death of hippie culture. Hippie culture is something that we, in our modern sensibilities for people that were born after it was kind of categorized and commoditized and Hollywoodized and everything, uh, remember as this kind of like free love we associate it with recreational drug use or or uh, a sexual liberation, by and large, things that have gotten more popular through time. But what we don't think about is kind of what people, what hippies were thought of at the time, which at its most corrosive, the Manson family lost people that were looking for some kind of uh, a grip onto society. And that led to a lot of very abusive people uh, becoming powerful. And so what this movie does is tells a lot of, you know, that's where the culture is. That's where Los Angeles is. The movie industry is going through its own phase. And so Rick Dalton is our example of, of, of that. And every, you know, uh, or, you know, yeah, Dalton's the Leo character, right? Mm -hmm. And then Cliff Booth is the, is the stunt double. And so Cliff is, is kind of the, the super position in between the two. Where is he going to go? He's also lost. So is he going to go with the culture? Is he going to go with Hollywood as it, you know, changes and everything. We find out more and more about him. As much as I love the movie, I would disagree with the idea that it is Tarantino's kind of magnum opus. I would still say that it's it's hard to unring the bell that Pulp Fiction rings. And mm -hmm. if you're going for the expansive epic, it's it's hard to get better than I'm going to do the movie that kills Hitler. Um, <laughs> fair, fair. But I, I do think that it is a very, very, very subtle movie for Tarantino. And and subtlety is not his strong suit. He does no. not do a lot of stuff is very, you know, his, his grindhouse influences tend to kind of be up front. But this is a movie that's got a lot of layers. And specifically the Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate character is... Is something that I think a lot of people kind of misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons why, like Brett, I like the movie so much, like it resonated with me so much, is honestly, Tarantino for me was really on a downturn. I thought that, uh, that Django Unchained was fine. I think it's a half hour too long. There's parts of it I really, really enjoy, but just everything in the the part after Denzel gets captured, I'm like, okay, come on! Like, I'm, like people were walking out of the theater when he's doing horse after tricks. Who? Wait, what did, what did I say? You said Denzel. You said Denzel. It's fine. No, oh, I meant Jamie Foxx. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but for some reason, I, I was picturing the poster and Denzel was there. Like, it was, <laughs> I don't know. Why. Anyway, by the way, you uh, know, it was supposed to be Will Smith. Interesting. Will Smith turned it down. Yeah, but I I didn't see Hateful Eight and not. 
I just, I just have no interest. I still haven't seen it. And I, I'm sure I will. And I'm sure I'm going to think it's good. But just so much of that, uh, we're all bastards and we're all getting revenge on each other in crazy, intricate ways. I just didn't excite me in the way that maybe it did when I was like a, a college kid. So for this movie, it was totally just like a breath of fresh air for a director that I had loved so much. Come out the movie where now it's like, yeah, I'm excited about this in a way I haven't been for your last couple of movies. Hateful Eight's an interesting one. Uh, it was initially a novel he was going to write in the Django universe. It was supposed to be a Django, a further adventure of Django that then he decided he wanted to make. I, I kind of think of Hateful Eight as Tarantino's all-star game. Like He just kind of gets <laughs> yeah. a bunch of actors that you've seen in other tarantino movies to play characters that are kind of like those characters from the other <laughs> tarantino movies but now you get to see them all smashed together in this in this world where they're all interacting with each other it really is uh, you know that is an actors 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 movie like everybody is acting with a capital a <laughs> the entire time like that the camera's on them which is funny because in once upon a time in hollywood Leo's entire arc is kind of this like meditation on the reality of being an actor, the reality of being a celebrity, the reality of uh, what happens when your profession is fame, your talent is every once in a while judged, but by and large, it, it's you're just kind of this commodity. He He realizes that he's, the, the the mashed potato, the dance, not the food, uh, like the dance craze. Like he's he's the Harlem Shake, and he was really <laughs> hot for a little bit, and now he's just gone. It doesn't matter how intricate the Harlem Shake is; it just that's what happens. And you know the 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 stuff with him on the set with the child actor <laughs> is just oh, it's so just great. exceptional stuff. Just so so great, mostly because there is this realism to it there is this realism of is a human ego meant to stretch that far even if you were the toughest person on the planet mentally can anybody handle it let alone the lunatics who are actors because we've all met actors in our life even in high school they were never the people that you're like oh that person should do my taxes like they're kind of <laughs> weird <laughs> Yeah, and I, I love that scene too because then he gets into the part where he's talking about the book that he's reading, right. and it's that not so subtle again, you know, Tarantino subtlety—two words that are synonymous. Uh, where he's very obviously describing kind of how he feels about himself, and he starts crying as he's telling this little girl the plot of the Western novel that he's reading. Yeah, sure. she'll be there in fifteen years. She'll understand. <laughs> What's happening to Easy Breezy now? Oh, uh, he's um. He He's not the best anymore. In fact, far from it. And he's coming to terms with what it's like to be slightly more used. Slightly more useless each day. Moving back, I, I think that when we talk about how this is one of his more subtle films, I, the last time we saw Tarantino on the podcast was for Jackie Brown. And I think this is 
kind of in that camp of, of Tarantino films. If you were to compartmentalize them into different styles, this is very much more like Jackie Brown. It, it holds back significantly on his, on his penchant for violence and even vulgarity to an extent. And it, it gets there and we'll get to that. But talking specifically on Sharon Tate, there's been a lot of discussion over Sharon Tate in this movie because she doesn't have a very large part. Margot Robbie is not in the movie a whole lot. She doesn't say a whole lot. I actually am on the fence where I, I like this because I think Tarantino is doing two things. He's a, he feels more comfortable writing inside of fictional characters. I really do think that I don't think he wants to put words in Sharon Tate's mouth. And two, he humanizes her in a way that pop culture has not that Sharon Tate became a murder victim. And that's all she's been for the last 40 years. Yeah. And she was more than that. And she was this, this delightful woman who went to go or, you know, in this world, of the movie uh, goes and sees herself on the screen and is is excited by the audience reaction. And these are heartwarming elements that make her more human that make the whirlwind that, that her death creates in Hollywood so different at the end of the movie when it doesn't happen spoilers, but he really captures that wonderfully. And I think that that's really important because he's, he's preserving this innocence isn't the right word, but he's preserving this part of Hollywood that died with Sharon Tate uh, a part of Hollywood that he has a lot of admiration and affection for. And to do that for her legacy, I think is really powerful. And I, and I like that part of the movie quite a bit. Also, I, I think it's slightly difficult. I know Tarantino has a track record with, with, mm-hmm. you know, Uma, with Uma Thurman in particular, but he has written a lot of really awesome heroines. Like he, I don't think he's the guy you point to when you talk about poor writing of women. I just don't. And I don't think that's the case here either, but I know that I'm on one side of that. Do you think? Oh, go ahead. Cool. I was going to say, I mean, I definitely agree about the good things that he does for Sharon Tate and her legacy in this movie. And I'm, I see your point. And I think, I think you may be correct in that he doesn't want to put his words in a real person's mouth that she may not have said. And he's only willing to speculate so far. But I don't think, I think Marg Robbie is doing such a fantastic job here that she doesn't need to be talking to get across who Sharon Tate was. Now, my understanding is that they consulted with Sharon Tate's youngest surviving sister and spoke to her about who she was as a person and what she was like. And, you know, Margot really conveys that this is a sensitive person who would pick up hitchhikers and talk to them and be excited to meet new people and learn new things and who had a great time working with Bruce Lee and will circle back to that at some point. (laughs) But yeah, it is. (sighs) Quentin does not make himself easy to like as a person. (laughs) Well, I will yeah. never disagree that he is a fantastic director. I think he's, he's even if you want to cut down his work by saying that it's all homages and it's all stolen from other places, he's a remarkable collage artist, if you want to put it that way. He knows how to put thing, the pieces together in a way that's really compelling and engaging. But... Uh, <sighs> On the personal front, uh, 
He's a weirdo. He's a weirdo. <laughs> and he keeps putting women's feet on screen in a weird way that is like, it's like, look, I love him. He is probably my favorite director. I don't need the unbroken, you know, curve uh, <laughs> shot. Like Sharon Tate for the, the, and I do agree with everything that you guys have said that it, that it is a credit to trying to rewrite her legacy as something more than a murder victim. But she doesn't need to take off her shoes and put her feet no. center <laughs> camera uh, while she's in the theater. The the hitchhiker no. doesn't need to put her feet up on the dashboard center camera. Uh, I would interrogate the idea that he doesn't feel comfortable putting words in dead people's mouths because he sure puts a lot of words in Bruce Lee's mouth. And Bruce Lee's family was definitely not <sighs> consulted on that. And they were furious about, yeah. about how he was portrayed. Yeah. Now, there is more evidence to say that Bruce Lee was that level of braggart in real life than there is to say that Sharon Tate is anything other than what we see on screen. I do think that if you look at the sum total of what we know about these kind of guys, that the portrayal of, of Bruce Lee, while certainly heightened, is not necessarily totally fabricated. But in martial arts tournaments, I do to win what they do to win. I unleash all my power. I kill people. Well, if you fought Cassius Clay, who would win? Well, that would never happen. But if you did, what do you think would happen? I'd make him a quipple. <laughs> but I do think that when it comes to uh, Tate, what this movie does so elegantly is play its own expectations against yours. Tarantino is a director known for violence, for extreme violence. He is doing a movie about the Manson murders, one of the most gruesome and violent murders in American history. He then puts Tate in all these scenes where we're getting Glimpses, glimpses, hints, hints, hints with the idea, at least in my in my mind, of us being like, oh, well, we're waiting. Her big mm -hmm. scene is coming up. We know the big scene she's going to be in and you're dreading it. You're dread. At least I was. I'm like, God, oh, I mean, like, oh, I definitely was the first time yeah. I saw. It. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, I don't know what I mean, like, is this going to be like Kill Bill? Are we going to do crazy violence for the Manson murders like and she's so sweet and then when it doesn't happen it is the fact that you realize oh no she's a small character that you're almost relieved because we're not going to see her butchered in fact we see the the Manson family you know uh, get the the three stooges level violence put to them in a fun fist pumping kind of way uh, I'm glad that you mentioned Jackie Brown Tarantino has said that he makes two kinds of movies, movies that are movies and then movies that are set in a world where the other movies he makes would be shown in theaters. So it's like uh, Django and uh, Inglorious Bastards. Those are movies that Jackie Brown would go see. Right. Uh, and, and this is a movie that plays like a Jackie Brown movie until it becomes inglorious bastards in the final kind of like 20 minutes and, and tells this far more fantastical story. And as soon as we're off the rails there, then literally 
the movie bleeds into real life with Rick Dalton getting his flamethrower and torching <laughs> Chekhov's uh, flamethrower. Yes, exactly. And torching the Manson family member. So I, I think like, it, it just is, it's really, really, really structurally sound in that way. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. And it's, it, we talked a little bit about the tension at the spawn ranch scene and you have these expectations. It's not just the expectations of the Tate murders. It's kind of, as Justin was saying as well, it's the expectations of Tarantino where when he was at the spawn ranch, I'm like, okay, something's going to happen. Like it's Tarantino. Something is going to happen. And I just, I remember being so tense in the movie theater the whole time that scene was happening because I'm just waiting for the shoe to drop. And what happens is that Brad Pitt punches uh, some shirtless guy a bunch of times and it's great. Uh, makes him change a tire and then leaves like they, he subverts that expectation. And then it comes back around when they go to Dalton's house. And it's, it's like the tension was so palpable. And to be fair, this is a three hour movie. I saw this at the Alamo draft house. So uh, I just like kind of kept putting up that ticket. <laughs> keep bringing me, keep bringing me beers. Let's just keep doing this since uh, this movie's not over yet. And uh, I, it, just by the time I got to that before, it has that, that 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 satisfying explosion of dog in your face and flamethrower. You're just oh, it was so it was. I felt so tense in ways that I rarely feel in movies. Absolutely, Nicole, you did put in our docket verbatim. Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a good dog you would be. Agreed. <laughs> Uh, I just wanted to throw out there, Brandy at the end of this movie. Ten out of ten, best dog. When Brad Pitt. <laughs> is so high just so incredibly high and he's putting together the pieces like 10 steps behind these guys had broken into the house but picks them up just quickly enough to beat the living out of them sickest dog on him best best movie dog we like movie dogs here brandy <laughs> gets the trophy i think brandy does and who opinion. knew think, you know I in a movie also- with brad pitt in it that the dog would have like the best muscles out of anyone <laughs> in this whole thing <laughs> also, was there a dog thing in the actual Manson murder? I know that there's like like this eventually just becomes Tarantino's revenge fantasy against the you know corrosive hippie element of of the Manson family. By the way, one thing that I also thought was was very well done was uh, the casting of all the Hollywood kids. So many of the Manson yes. family extras are oh, uh, yeah. children of famous actors and directors. Maya Hawk showing up, of course. Yeah. Um, continuing the family tradition. Yeah, you got Harley Quinn Smith and Rumor Willis and Yeah. Jeez, you people all know a lot of actors' children. They <laughs> <laughs> all do stuff, man. Gotta watch Stranger Things, man. Yeah, they're all they're all doing Stranger things. things. Don't you understand that we live in we live in a society where they just keep pumping them out and then they get all the jobs and we have to watch them for the next 20 years. <laughs> 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 The cycle continues. So Bruce Lee, uh, fair point, Justin. (laughs) He has no issue putting words in Bruce Lee's mouth. And he's actually doubled down on this. He did come back and say, no, I've heard and um, that he was just as arrogant as I wrote him, if not more so. And I'm happy I did it (laughs) in typical Tarantino fashion. Um, How do we feel about that scene? I would argue. I would argue about this because the Bruce Lee scene where he's being a braggart and he's being incredibly cocky is Cliff's flashback where Cliff comes off as the clear winner in this fight and yeah. 
super smoothly, takes this guy down, puts him in his place. It costs him the job for the week, but he does it and he feels satisfied by it. So I kind of wonder if maybe this memory isn't a bit colored by his own bias for himself and that's what he was trying to show with putting well, in this way because especially later, when you especially when you juxtapose that with the memory of his wife on the boat right <laughs> whether or not he thinks he killed his wife on the boat so like yeah i think that that's like there is this running thread of exactly how reliable of a narrator rick dalton is how and again, it's how vulnerable he is, because that's the big question is like, is this a movie about, sorry, Cliff, uh, how, how uh, is Cliff going to join the Manson family? Is Cliff, you know, where, where is he going to go? Like that is, no, that I is never wondered about that, up. or at least I never wondered if he was going to join the Manson family. I did wonder where he was going to end up because it, it's clear that this partnership that they have, to me, at least it's clear that it's not going to last forever. Oh, but that there's something's going to trigger the separation there's a beautiful line that uh that is in the narration when they're on the plane and they're talking about how they're about to have their good old-fashioned drunk that's how they're gonna you know set, sunset their partnership yeah. and it's like how do you you know it's the only way you can say goodbye to somebody who is more than a friend and a little bit less than a wife and i yeah. i have i have a friend in my life that is like that and it's like that's like yeah i get that if he and i had to like go our separate ways that's the only way you could could say that goodbye after nine years together, would be Rick and Cliff's final rodeo. Cliff doesn't have a clue what he's going to do. The only thing the two men know of for sure, tonight, Rick and Cliff will have a good old-fashioned drunk. Both men know once the plane touches down in El Segundo, it'll be the end of an era for both of them. When you come to the end of the line with a buddy who is more than a brother and a little less than a wife, getting blind drunk together is really the only way to say farewell. Yeah, I mean, and uh, Nicole, I, I I take your point that that you might not have seen it, but I do think that that's where the movie is trying to at least illustrate the possibility. Not that as we learn more about Cliff, it seems less and less likely, but the idea of the Manson family was lost souls that were attracted to companionship, free sex, and drugs, and the price for that was. But just doing what Charlie said. And that was that was that. But it's like, and the more we find out that he's kind of a no bullshit sort of guy, the, the more that that doesn't kind of stand to reason. But he does find companionship, at least in the first initial meeting with the 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 young girl, the young hitchhiker. He he is interested in kind of what's going on. But when he goes to Spawn Ranch, you know, there is a question in your mind of exactly uh, how long is he going to stay there? Who is he there for? And then you find out that he's just there to find out what, what what's up with Spawn <laughs> because he's like, right. like, this is weird. And everything kind of goes haywire and that sets up our third act. Does Did, did Cliff kill his wife? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not, possibly not on purpose, but I think probably. I mean... If you're going to knock this movie for being misogynistic, the fact that we're kind of cool with him killing is well, the possibility <laughs> of him killing his wife because she's a bit of a bitch for like, you know, five <laughs> seconds uh, right. is definitely that that I would circle that before I would circle yeah. anything with, with, fair. With, uh, with, with Tate in terms of the misogyny. That's fair. Certainly. 
All right. So one other piece I wanted to talk about with this film is Tarantino is very particular about hand selecting his soundtracks. Uh, so much so that during like kill the original kill bill, he went back and forth a million times on, I'm blanking on the song. Justin might know, but he fought tooth and nail to get a specific song in that film. And he's always done this battle without honor or humanity. Uh, it might be, but in any case, What he does yeah. in this movie, I thought was very interesting because uh, he picks what, in my opinion, is one of his best curated selections of music that works really well hmm. for the time period he's filming in. And he also picks stuff that's kind of derpy. And I mean that in the way that it's the kind of stuff that's on the radio because the radio is constantly on in the background. Like for a movie that takes place in the 60s and the 70s, it even makes fun of itself at one point when Sharon Tate says oh, God forbid your friends hear that you're listening to Paul Revere and the Raiders instead of The Doors. You don't get your your white rabbit, thank God, but you don't get all those trappings of a traditional 60s and 70s soundtrack. And instead, you get stuff like Paul Revere and Roy Head, and he brings in a bunch of like local radio station stingers, and he, he very clearly adores the commercials. There's a lot of commercials in this movie. Like that style of... Of audio just seems to have really captured him. What do you say? You want to be the prettiest, sunniest blonde in town? Well, of course you do. Well, you listen to this now. And putting that all together. It's like there's always a radio on in the background capturing this movie. And I think it's very unique to him that he's just so careful about the music he picks. It's- One of my favorite Bob Seger songs ever on this planet, Ramblin' Gamblin' Man. And it's only in there for like 10 seconds. And just, no, no, stay with that. Stay with that. What are you with the montage? Stop it. But <laughs> I do um, really enjoy how the, the soundtrack is like part of the, the scenery. Yeah. And, and that's and that's really he has such a faithful recreation of that era, both in physical set design and and in sound. I think it's great. Uh, fun fact: if you ever hear on a Tarantino soundtrack what sounds like like uh, artifacting of like analog analogy kind of artifacting, it's because he often uses his own records as mm-hmm. the actual versions of the songs on his soundtrack. You, you see it a lot on the Kill Bill Two soundtrack. And, and Django as well, but he'll he'll be playing his own, not the like masters from the record label or whatever, but like his him playing his own records will be the versions on the soundtrack. Paxton Quigley's had the course and he's spinning Paxton Quigley's had the course Oh, that is so Tarantino. Yeah, I knew about that for Django because it's got like some of those like pops and yeah, that that is 
That's so on brand. I did not know that. Nicole, you want to talk about? Oh, you were gonna say pretentious, but it came out on brand there. <laughs> well, no, but that's it. I mean, he's Tarantino, and and right. he's he's outlived it. Like, I mean, his movies only get longer; they only get more <laughs> rambling. They apparently, and I I'm shocked we haven't heard any more of this, especially through the pandemic. But allegedly, he had a deal with Netflix to put this out as like a four part miniseries after it was released theatrically. That had a bunch of cut scenes that was that were going to be put into it to make it an even longer movie because there was literally only one man on the planet that could edit down a Quentin Tarantino movie, and he's in jail because his name is Harvey <laughs> Weinstein. Like there, uh, uh, otherwise, like his movies, like the universe, will only expand until the <laughs> death of of all of us. You know, this one I didn't mind because so much of it is a, a hangout movie almost with Rick and Cliff and their adventures and, and what they do. And it's it's actually mostly one day. I was re-watching it just before we started recording and like 50% of the film takes place on February 9th for some reason. Right. But it's the day that he does the Lancer pilot, that Rick does the Lancer pilot and Cliff drives around and has his flashback of Bruce Lee and picks up Pussycat and takes her to the Spawn Ranch. So <laughs> the bulk of the movie is one day. Until they go to shoot Italian films, as it <laughs> says. It's just so... Uh, it's so much fun at the beginning. It really sucked me in immediately with the faux interview on the Bounty Law set where he cracks the carrying his load joke. Yeah. And... <laughs> And I, oh, oh, this is cool. This is fun. All right. Let's see where this is going. <laughs> I can't tell because there's a lot of shots where Leonardo DiCaprio is inserted into either existing like old footage. Actually, that's pretty much it. He's inserted into existing old footage. And I just can't tell. Does he not have the look of an actor from back then? Or am I just too aware that that's Leonardo DiCaprio and he was not alive during that? Could just- have done without it. Could he looks too young done, for his age. Could have done without. <laughs> could have done without. That that's there are moments. And look, I'm not this is not a pro Harvey Weinstein argument. But <laughs> what is gonna follow that? That's sentence? a dangerous preface. Go ahead. This, <laughs> yeah. But there was one man on the planet that could tell Quentin Tarantino, no, it's it doesn't add anything to the movie. You need to take it out. And if you watch deleted scenes for some of his other movies. At least with that, he was fairly rarely wrong. (laughs) And I think that there is now nobody that is powerful enough in Hollywood that Quentin Tarantino respects that's going to make him take out the I put Leonardo DiCaprio in the great escape scene, despite the fact that it adds literally nothing to the movie. Well, I mean, is this his, what, second movie after the passing of his longtime editor, uh, Sally uh, Menke? Sally Menke? I think that was his first. I think it was his first movie. Yeah. She did all his other movies. And uh, I think it shows a little bit, but it's also because the first time through, you're dreading what you think is coming. And I'm just like, you know, it's okay if this is long. Oh, no, no, wait. No, no. She died. She died earlier. Uh, She died in 2010. So it's been. Oh, Oh, all right. I think it was Django, Hateful Eight, and. and and once upon a time, yeah, all of which you could argue are a little a little overlong. 
<laughs> I mean, but then again, Inglorious Bastards is too long too. Like you know, there's. Right. I, I think he's he just again, nobody is going to tell him no. He's going to get final say on everything. And and yeah, there is this idea that you'll see around a lot, like oh, just let like directors make whatever movie they want, let them like do whatever, and then we end up with The Irishman. We end up with <laughs> with Tarantino movies that are that are pushing three hours, and it's like no, it's okay for someone to tell them no and to say, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe you, you don't need it. And with this movie, obviously we had fun with it. Uh, the amount that we could have taken out might be negligible versus the actual running time. But I think it, it is definitely getting to that point where it, if he released kill bill today, it would be parts one and two would be the double feature that you'd sit in the theater for four hours watching. Man, some inside baseball on this podcast. I tried to bring the Irishman at one point to, just like explosion of frustration from both of you. <laughs> I walked that <laughs> back. Um, when did I, when did, when did I ever turn? I mean, I'm not excited to watch it, but I will <laughs> Four hour movie. Yeah. It wasn't for a future classic. I'll at least say that <laughs> there's a guide out there uh, for like how to watch it. Like a mini series, like <laughs> where Mary gives you time codes to like, say, like, all right, that's episode one. That's episode two. That's episode three. That's episode four. I would say, just go do it that way. I'm for, I'll, I would, I would watch once upon a time in Hollywood as a five episode oh, yeah. series. Like it add yeah. more stuff to it. I, I think that there's room for that. Uh, but I'm, I'm a lunatic who likes the Lord of the Rings extended editions better than the, than the original. Thank so you. like, yeah, no, no, and, and I'm not saying I wouldn't watch more of this movie, but yeah, if it's broken out into hour-long chunks that I can, you know, take breaks in the middle of and not feel like I'm really interrupting the story and kind of like build that anticipation with, like, that's a totally different experience than this being the one three-hour cohesive thing that it is. Yeah, I think there's some. I think there's some credence to that. I'll bounce around here to a couple other discussion topics. Uh, evil, sexy Hamlet. You just put that quote in our docket, Nicole. Um, <laughs> There's some Tarantino's very quotable, <laughs> but th- some <laughs> of my all time favorite Tarantino quotes are in this movie. Uh, particularly, I'm here to do some devil. Shit. That's a great one. Oh, that's um, not that's not a Tarantino quote. That was, no, no, no. But the way Cliff is paraphrasing. Oh, the way Cliff, oh yeah. yeah said. Right. <laughs> They're here to do the devil's business, not do some devil. Shit. Oh, that's right. 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 I was like, and your name was something like you know i don't know what it was he says you know i'm the devil and i'm here to do the devil's business like no i was dumber than that (laughs) (laughs) but yeah the evil Uh, sexy sexy hamlet Hamlet. i mean nicholas hammond doing as a director this (laughs) completely hammy director and i'm old enough to be like spider-man it's (laughs) spider-man he was he played spider-man on in on a tv show in the late 70s but he's so that in enthusiasm and he's the i think he might be the most heightened character in this movie because he's chewing the scenery as this archetypical enthusiastic director just being you know come on baby gimme use it put it all in the performance or you know super high energy and just delightful as dicaprio as rick dalton is doing his big scene at the end with Trudy, the child actress and throwing her on the floor and 
you know, as that's closing out and the director saying, okay, give me more evil, sexy Hamlet. Good, good. Hold, hold. And, cut, you know, have some fun with it. Yeah. 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 I do love that kind of like break from the filming back to the reminder, like we're on the set and it's just that guy in the background. Give me evil, sexy Hamlet. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, messenger boy. Deliver my message. Give me evil, sexy Hamlet. Set him a duet. Enjoy it. And cut! Agreed. Now, uh, hard right turn here. There's some criticism of the, co- the final confrontation that goes that it goes too far in its intensity. Agree or disagree. For a Tarantino movie, I actually find it something that my mom could probably watch, and that's saying something. <laughs> I understand some of the confrontation is there's concern. As Justin mentioned earlier, it, it gets three stoogy, and there's stoogy. There's concerns around trivializing what actually happened. I've, I've certainly read critiques to that effect. I don't know if I fall in that camp. I will say though, that something I didn't really notice the first couple times I saw this movie is that when he brings the flamethrower out, he has no idea what's going on to the point that he doesn't actually know if this woman is a victim or not. I mean, she's like, he, there's no context. <laughs> he just brings out. She's the, waving a gun in the air. Sure. But I don't know. I'm just like, he doesn't know what happened inside. And, uh, just torches her. I think he says he burnt her to a crisp, which is just morbidly delightful at the end when he goes to town on him. But point being, I I do understand some of the criticism uh, surrounding the end of the film. I personally don't have a problem with it. And maybe that's because it's light for an Tarantino film and I was expecting something so much worse. I was expecting to see Sharon Tate and her unborn baby get killed. And part of the the shock of it is just because it, it hadn't happened up to that point. The scene at the ranch, nothing happened there, aside from him punching him in the face, but that's incredibly tame to some of the other Tarantino things. So then when when it all just it explodes and it happens like all at once, it is a lot uh, if you're you know not ready for it. Um, there are times in movies where you feel, and, and possibly it's because you know the, the director or the writer personally, that you can feel that there is like a grievance they want to... Mm-hmm. exercise on the screen it, it feels very personal and you know a, a cabin in the woods was that to me specifically like the ending monologue of like okay well what are movies and what are horror movies and why are they important and why aren't they important and when are they cheap and when are they meaningful and like there there was a lot that just sort of became a film essay what the end of this movie turns into is what you find out is, is this kind of like public relations bordering on propaganda piece for Sharon Tate and against the Manson family. And you want the Manson family does not only lose, they don't, they lose to like nearly a blackout wasted, uh, you know, a, an actor who is at that point, just the biggest on the planet and Cliff Booth, who's like, tough but dumb as rocks and stoned out of his mind and then they not only get beaten they're murdered mercilessly like Mm -hmm. just absolutely shredded therefore taking away what we know them for which are menacing haunting murderers that they're almost spectral and evil and demonic like that's what the mystique around the manson family 
has been for decades and decades and decades. So he wants to just against Tony. He doesn't want them to be heroic and beat evil people. He wants them to be shit faced and beat idiots. Like just, <laughs> just totally defang them and then have us be happy that these morons didn't even put up that good of a fight. And this woman and her unborn baby get to live and hopefully maybe divorce Roman Polanski. They're not exactly, uh, they're not, you know, he doesn't take a firm <sighs> Polanski stance, but everybody kind of wins by the end. So uh, I loved it once you knew the whole of it. Like, mm-hmm. I think that there are like moments where you're like, oh God, we watched a three hour movie and it just turned into two wasteoids beating up on some fairly, you know, defanged hippies like that. That isn't exactly epic. That's not filling gobels with a billion uh, machine gun rounds like they did in Inglorious Bastards and burning Hitler alive and then carving up the Jew hunter like like that's brava. That's big, right? This is kind of small, but I think that that's the point. The point is by the end of it, the movie might as well have been called at the end, fuck the Manson family and anybody who takes it seriously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it ties together there at the end. If it had left us kind of on that, I think the movie would be a little bit lesser, but they have that moment then after all of that where Dalton meets Sharon Tate and they don't know what's gone on, but he gets invited you know, into the gate to go have a drink. He gets finally let into that holy land that he's been waiting for. Which is which is just so Hollywood. It's so oh, yeah. That's the <laughs> oh, end. The end is that he gets up the courage to talk to his neighbors, and indeed they <laughs> might benefit his career. <laughs> uh, but then it brings it back to that fragile ego world, that that walking on eggshells world of artistry. And you know, again, it's 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 a movie that I think doesn't get the credit for as sound as it is. David, you put in our docket that this is one of DiCaprio's best performances, one of Pitt's best in years, particularly the trailer scene, which I think speaks volumes to those fragile egos of the Hollywood elite. I admittedly have not seen Leonardo DiCaprio crawl up into a bear and die. So I maybe I don't know if he dies. (laughs) I haven't seen that. Probably sacrilege to announce that on a movie podcast. But I know that that has been his, his greatest film of the last decade or so. But for this, for my money, he is just, he captures that fragility of an incredibly egotistical man who has been broken down by becoming an oddball fixture on FBI's Most Wanted and stuff like that when they can slot him in. Uh, he plays it beautifully. There, speaking to The Revenant, there is still, it's still kind of this thing where you get recognized for acting like in awards shows when you suffer the most during your acting like right. how how hard did you go for it to the point that you ate like an animal liver uh, on screen to really give it that authenticity where here he's playing a very real human being and he's got that sort of like stutter to him and just his mannerisms really show that he is not a very confident person who is in the world of acting like i enjoy his role in this so much more that i enjoy him crawling into a bear like you said <laughs> Yeah. No, I think he's great. And I think it is for Brad Pitt's money as a guy that doesn't stop working. He has he has a lot of misses nowadays, just and that's going to happen, but really hones in on writing Brad Pitt exceptionally well. 
Tarantino can write Brad Pitt. Oh, yeah. He does laconic super well. You know? Yeah. Yeah, he's aging, but he's still got that million-dollar smile. Somebody who kind of fetishizes big celebrity, like 70s (laughs) celebrity, where, like, you just put people in the same movie and you gave them different jobs for, you know, 10 years. It's just like, all right, like Robert Redford, he's, uh, you know, what is he good at? He's good at uh, grace under pressure, being handsome and being relatable while also larger than life. So let's just give him every job we could possibly think of that highlights that you're not going to see him play against character all that much. And I think that that's where both, well, Pitt more than Leo because he, he he writes Pitt in similar characters that have different sort of like restrictor caps on them. Leo, he writes, you know, Leo's a, a more versatile actor than than Brad Pitt is just sort of in general. But I think he does his best work. I mean, there there's certain guys that, you know, obviously Samuel L. Jackson, Christoph Waltz, that, you know, Tarantino dialogue just sounds great coming out of their mouths. And and to David, to, to the uh, Hateful Eight thing, that's basically the point of Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight is like, let's just get all the actors that my dialogue sounds good coming out of their mouths and just write a story where they're all just doing that at all times. Oh, 100%. Right. Mm-hmm. And let's put them all in one small room, yet shoot it in 70 millimeter. That's okay. You know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. I see their pores. <laughs> but the spectacle the spectacle of seeing that live and i i feel like that's one of those movies you can actually say you saw it live uh was so much fun but i mean dicaprio is so he's so good here and it is so much fun and the mm-hmm. trailer scene is so fantastic where he's like you're gonna make a promise to yourself that you're gonna quit drinking so much and he like immediately punctuates it by taking a swig out of the flask <laughs> yeah <laughs> but then- you know he goes back and you can see he's and he, he kills it. He absolutely nails the scene. And you can see that he can feel it. And he knows that he got it. And to put the icing on the cake, the girl comes up and tells him that that's the best acting she's seen in his whole life. And his ego is just sent to the stars by an eight-year-old. And that was fantastic. All right. Okay, moving on. We're in the bordello. Next setup. <laughs> That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Like you. Yeah, this little girl who takes it more seriously than he does, and so feels lesser. And then when she gives him this compliment, for no one else in the movie ever really talks about his acting so much as as that moment affects him. Like I made it because she told me I did. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, once upon a time in Hollywood, I think that it will be a future classic. I just, I think it's, you know, I, I know there's some differing views on, on what Tarantino's best work is, but I think it is a very finely t- tuned exhibition of what he's best at while being more subdued and more focused than sometimes he can be, uh, which is which is to say, even though it's two hours and 40 minutes long, it really does feel engaging, which is a feat in and of itself. Let's go around the table, though. 
Am I wrong? Uh, <laughs> what stipulations would you put on it if you think I'm right? Uh, we'll start with the guest, Justin. Do you think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood could be a future classic? I think it is. I mean, to me, to me, it is. It's, you know, he's still throwing his fastball. I mean, but I, I think he's threatening to do one more movie and, and then that'll be it. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I, hopefully he does one more movie and then he just does streaming and he doesn't call the movies. Uh, as long as he keeps making... Uh, making stuff then that's great but but to me this was among the best stuff uh that he's done and uh, another great uh addition to his kind of LA line of movies his like fetishizing LA uh like he did in pulp fiction little bit in Jackie Brown Jackie Brown's just more set in LA but uh this one obviously is just luxuriating in the concept of 1969 Los Angeles Absolutely all right, Nicole, what do you think? Honestly, you know, whatever I, I think of the man personally, I, it would be a very short list of his films that I think wouldn't be classics and aren't going to be regarded as classics down the line. You know, like maybe they might, might leave out Hateful Eight, might leave out Death Proof. Jackie Brown's still my favorite. I'm not going to say which one is best and which one is absolutely the worst, but I mean, this is my second favorite of his films. This is something that you can you could put on in the background, but it probably won't be successful as a background movie because you'll stop and you'll be watching that scene and then you'll sit down and then you'll watch the whole rest of the movie. It's it's mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Long and the short of it, yes. Uh, I think it's N- N- Nicole, think it's I'm with you. I'm with you on Jackie Brown. I think that you can make an argument that that is definitely his best, that those performances are just great. So good. Yeah, they're and, out of the park. And him at his best bringing in actors. So. And, and I think the movie, the movie unfairly got kind of dinged for being a fractured narrative coming off of Pulp Fiction, which obviously does the grand kind of fractured narrative sort of thing. But it's like when you rewatch it in context with the, with the other movies, it, it's not the same thing. It like it, It's just a, you know, a, a different way to tell that final that final act see my favorite tarantino is like when he's half tarantino i mean i love most of tarantino's work but there'll be a special place in my heart forever for you know from dusk till dawn and the stuff he did with robert rodriguez uh when it's half of a tarantino movie is even better uh i love that movie Tarantino, the, the full moon comes out well i mean yeah i mean that he wrote the whole script that is all tarantino he did. You know, it, it is, uh, you know, that was, I think, the first script he sold and was just in development hell forever. But uh, the scene that he, he wound up taking a lot of stuff from that and putting it in Pulp Fiction. There's a scene where uh, they're, they're making their way, they're cornered by all the zombies and they realize that they can fill up all the condoms with holy water and they can bless the water. <laughs> and he's, uh, uh, I think it's Harvey Keitel that's doing the Lord's Prayer Mm-hmm. Um, but originally that was, uh, Ezekiel 25, 17. And <laughs> the, the, the script was just kind of sitting in development hell for so long that he, uh, uh just stole it and put it in Pulp Fiction. I love that movie. <laughs> I love it so much. David, is this a future classic? I will echo something from what Nicole said, where I had seen this movie fairly recently. So I had just, uh, put it on today kind of in the background, but ended up getting sucked into it. And I think that's why I'll say this movie definitely will be a classic is it just, it captivates you and it holds your attention 
in a way that a lot of movies just kind of fail to. Uh, it's it's just a a delight to watch, and then crazy and and dark and tense, and it's a lot of things, and it's a very good movie. And we barely touched on a, the acting because there's so many great people we didn't even mention. I mean, we we mentioned Timothy Oliphant at the beginning, but didn't really get to talk about him. Dakota Fanning shows up in this movie, Margaret Qualley, and that Luke Perry. I got to mention Luke Perry while we're oh, here. Just great, you know. yeah. Final performance. I'm so unexpectedly sad. I know. It's great. So, yeah, I think it's uh, unanimous around the board. Right on. Very good. But let's go around the horn one more time and see where we can find everybody online. Justin, you're doing so much right now. Uh, where can people find you? What should they be looking for? All that good stuff. Uh, politics, politics, politics is where I talk about politics. Uh, if you like comedy, then uh, Night Attack. But otherwise, you can just follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. Very good. And David, where can people find you? At Devloz, that is D-A-V-L-U-Z, Twitter and Instagram. And uh, check out, hit me one more time while you're at it. I'd appreciate it. Very good. And Nicole? I'm on Letterboxd under Nicole underscore Davis. And I take care of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast, And you can contact us there. Right on. My name is Brett Stewart. You can find me at I am Brett Stewart on Twitter. You can email the show, hi, H-I, at mgrpodcast.com if you have thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or any of the other movies that we watch. And finally, if you go to mgrpodcast.com, you can vote on the You Did This to Us weeks. You get to pick what we watch. You get to vote with the herd. Uh, We watched Cats, so at this point, I feel like you can't do much worse. I don't think it's going to get much worse than Cats. Don't challenge them. Yeah, that's a dangerous challenge. But you know what? If you can find something worse than cats that we're allowed to watch on the show, hats off. David, what are we watching next week? Goodbye, Lenin, a 2003 German film about uh, Berlin after the fall of the wall. Check it out. We will see you then. Mm